When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast, my name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here on the half of the podcast. Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. We are back, my guy. Yeah, this this is a makeup episode, you guys. There's really no other, no other way to say it. Allergies had me down bad the last couple of days. I tried to do some segments kind of for our YouTube channel the last couple of days. Couldn't do them because... Just the lights in my room, it would just get my eyes all watery. I was just an absolute mess the last couple of days with the allergies. But we are back. We are ready to go. We got some topics to hit in the NFL. We got some topics to hit in the NBA. And also, we are going to wrap it up with something that we don't typically do every now and then. But we're going to do a review of the newest Batman movie. And I think that'll be kind of like a cool way of wrapping up the episode. But with that said... Let's dive into these topics. I know I didn't go through each of the topics that we're going to go over, but really the biggest NFL topic that we have at our disposal right now, that is Khalil Mack being traded to the Los Angeles Chargers. It's an immediate upgrade to the Chargers defensive front. And really when you look at the def- the defensive front of what the Chargers have now, you've got Joey Boza, you've got Khalil Mack. You would have to assume that with that addition, the Chargers are looking primed for a huge playoff run this year. That is despite the fact that they are in a wildly competitive division in the AFC West. So all in all, this this looks like a great trade for the Chargers. And really the focus really kind of goes to that defense because that front four is going to look absolutely amazing for the Chargers now that they got Joey Boza and Khalil Mack on both sides of that defensive line. Now, we could dive into this a little bit more, but Kevin, I, I got to ask you about this. So with Khalil Mack going to the Chargers in a trade from Chicago, just what is his immediate impact to the Chargers? Well, when you look at it from the outside in, obviously, since we're not within the organization, so that was kind of silly of me to say, but when you look at this trade and for the price they paid to get him, Khalil Mack, when healthy, is a top 10 NFL player in terms of how he presents himself to the game, how he prepares for the game, the impact he has on the field, and then just his pure brute strength and athleticism just makes him one of the most dominant players right there next to Aaron Donald and a couple of other immediate pass rushers. So you go and tag him, and then you put him on the San Diego, excuse me, the LA Chargers, who already have Joey Bosa, another premier pass rusher. You have an elite offense with Justin Herbert, Mike Williams, who just re-signed, Keenan Allen and and company, as well as an up-and-coming secondary with Derwin James and Asante Samuel Jr. Can you really make a case that the Chargers are going to go out there and compete for a Super Bowl? I mean, that's kind of the hype that you get behind adding a player like Mack to a team that's already on the brink of playoff success. Now, I understand that last year they had that play-in game against the Raiders, and they fell short, but... 
you still had an amazing uh, regular season. You still have a, a quarterback that's growing, an offense that's developing. It was a first-time head coach or a first-year head coach, and the defense is just going to get better. I get it. Joey missed some games with some injury. Khalil Mack missed half the season with injury as well, but you have, you have to look at this from a, a, the bright side of things, and you have to say – the Chargers are in a position, man, where the AFC West are in our next topic with the addition of Russell Wilson coming into the division as well. Um, this particular person is – he has that much impact. Like, he is that powerful. He is that dominant on that side of the, of the football. And I think that he can immediately put the Chargers, not just in playoff contention, but significant contention in the AFC as a whole. Hey, Kevin, I'm in full agreement with you. Now, the I guess the only part that I would kind of – take a little bit of pause just because I don't want to be too prisoner of the moment is does Khalil Mack make the Chargers an immediate Super Bowl contender? I'm not going to go that far yet, but when you look at the Chargers as a whole now, now that they have Mack on the roster, that immediately puts them in great contention to possibly be at the top of the AFC West. So, you know, when you look at Khalil Mack, Khalil Mack has been one of the more defensive minded studs that we've seen in this generation you know, i mean he's right alongside guys like aaron donald and von miller as far as just their total effectiveness goes in creating absolute havoc against opposing offenses and when you look at his career whether it is with the raiders or whether it was the bears he was a model of consistency no matter where he's been and i think now that he's going to a team that has real and legitimate playoff chances Unlike the Bears, the Bears were just a nightmare since that freaking double doink that they suffered a couple of years ago in the playoffs. They've never been the same since. The Chargers are an up-and-coming team. They have a lot of exciting pieces, like you mentioned, with Justin Herbert, Keenan Allen, Mike Williams, Joey Boza, Asante Samuel Jr. Like, I mean, this team is very young, and now that you're adding a great veteran presence to the, to the locker room, I think it's going to work wonders for the Chargers. I think as far as the Chargers' outlook for this season goes, I do have to have them as a playoff team at this current moment in time just because even though that the AFC West is extremely competitive now with Russell Wilson going to the Broncos, you have to deal with KC, the Las Vegas Raiders were a playoff team last year. All four of these teams could legitimately be playoff contending teams next season. But if I had to say with the Chargers, when you bring somebody like Khalil Mack into the fold, that defense is going to be immediately bolstered. And they have a very good shot of being a top five defense just because of the absolute chaos that Joey Boza and Khalil Mack are going to be able to bring on a consistent basis. That's just kind of how I see it. I don't know if I'm going to go as far as say like they're going to immediately shoot to the top of the AFC. I still think that the... Charger and then the Charger. The Chiefs are a better team. I still believe that the Bills are a better team than the Chargers. And we do have to kind of see how this unfolds throughout the season. There's a lot of hype around the Chargers. It definitely deserves to be that. But let's pump the brakes on them being a Super Bowl contender just because they brought Khalil Mack into the fold. But I think overall, they are definitely a team on the rise and they could potentially be a top five team in the AFC next season. That's just how I see it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we we know what is coming this season with just the overall quarterback presence. Lamar Jackson's coming back from injury, obviously, in the next segment. We're in a, not the next segment, but, you know, the next next segment. We'll talk about Russell Wilson 
Um, you know, Patrick Mahomes is still there. Josh Allen is still there. The, the AFC is just stacked with just absolutely incredible quarterbacks. You got to have a pass rush. You got to be able to compete. And in that division with four potential Pro Bowl quarterbacks, dude, you need to be able to get to the quarterback as soon as humanly possible. And when you have pressure on both sides, like the, what the Chargers have just assembled, it's going to be kind of just scary for opposing offense to go in there and be like, who do we block? Well, and that's the thing, because I mean, we remember the last game of the season, the regular season, excuse me, when the Chargers were playing the Raiders. And what happened in that game? Both defenses fell apart. And that was because neither team could get a defensive stop when they needed it. Now that you have Khalil Mack in the mix for the Chargers, that's a guy that could be a difference maker when a team needs a stop, when the Chargers need a stop in a game that they need to win. I'm just saying, like, I think I think Khalil Mack has around like 75, 80 total sacks throughout his career. So when you get that type of consistency as far as his pass rushing ability goes, to go alongside with Joey Boza, that's going to be a nightmare for offensive lines to compete with. And I think the Chargers defense is going to be a lot more, how, how do I say this, formidable than what they were last season. So I think overall, I think the Chargers are in a really good spot. And I definitely think they have a very good shot to compete for the top of the AFC West. It's just that division's so stacked. I know we'll kind of get into it a little bit later, but definitely consider the Chargers as a team that could definitely win that division when it's all said and done. Now, with that said, we're going to kick it over to the NFC. We're going to talk a little bit about Kevin's former quarterback in Carson Wentz. Carson Wentz has been traded to the Washington Commanders. Uh, there was some mid-level draft capital that was switched between both teams when you look at the situation with Carson right now, Carson is now in Washington and it does kind of leave a vacancy for the Colts as far as their starting quarterback position goes at this current moment in time. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, what are your overall feelings about Carson Wentz being traded to the Washington Commanders just earlier this week? Listen, I'm just going to be first and foremost to say I have no issues with Carson Wentz as a person. Great character, great organization, and what he does with the nonprofit, great family, nice guy, right? No qualms with how he was this season in terms of being there and available for the team. Um, kind of tried to be a vocal guy from what you saw in Hard Knocks, but, you know, as the season kind of progressed, you got a little bit of a vibe that he wasn't necessarily the guy that was chosen by his peers to be a team captain. That was more of a Frank Reich forcing the envelope to try to get him to be liked by everybody. And, again, as the season ended, rumors started to circulate – um, once again, Kyle, I need you to also just be on the same page as me right now. The For the Culture podcast called this happening on January 15th. This trade occurred yesterday, March 9th. Or should I say, by the time you guys hear this and see this, two days ago on March 9th. And now everybody is starting to jump on the bandwagon of, well, you know, like, I guess Carson needed to go. Meanwhile, Jason Spears and Luke Diamond both called this happening after the Jacksonville loss. They said that Ballard and Ursay were not happy and that they were looking to move on. So a huge, massive shout-out to the For the Culture podcast because they are the true guys that broke this story and said that this was going to happen. So, you know, I had to get that out of the way. I know that Kyle and I use them for our Colts reference and Colts news, especially myself being a Colts fan. But Carson Wentz, again, as an individual, not a bad person, but what he was not able to do in clutch moments, what he failed to do in must-win games – what he failed to do in comeback situations, he just it, it, it was 
unsurmountable damage that he did to this team. He just could not get it going. Terrible decision-making. I know he only had seven interceptions, but for the most part, those seven interceptions were horribly decisions. They're just horrible decisions. I mean, one of them was a fucking left-handed pass in the end zone. Another one was into triple coverage against the Titans in overtime. Like, I mean, you really just look at this and you say, yes, he's a talented, physically statured, appealing individual that can make the throws and can get out of situations. But in late game scenarios, I don't trust him. Overthrowing receivers, taking gambles that were unnecessary, um, taking sacks that didn't need to be taken. I, I just, I cannot simply look at him and say, you're the quarterback of the future. We ended up getting a 2022 third-round pick. We got a 2023 third-round pick that can escalate into a second-round pick if second round pick if he plays 70% of the snaps. And then we get a 2022 second-round pick. Now, the Commanders receive also a 2022 second-round pick in Carson Wentz, but the piece de resistance is that Washington inherits the entire contract. So now the Colts have $70.5 million available in this free agency period for once the league year begins. So we win this trade, hands down, because he's got to go back to the NFC East and deal with that nonsense. We now have the available money to go and bring more weapons in. But the issue with me is this trade alleviates the stress of having Carson Wentz late in game, but it brings back the stress of this is going to be the sixth different starting quarterback in six years. Or should I say five, because Andrew Luck did it twice. Um I don't know what to feel about it. I don't know how to go about really looking at the situation. I mean, the available quarterbacks right now in the pool, Jameis Winston, Teddy Bridgewater, Jimmy Garoppolo, Derek Carr is not available to me because he wants upwards of $40 million and the Raiders look to not be willing to trade him, which I would assume would mean somewhere in the back end if they were listening to trade offers, it would be upwards of first-round picks, you know, top prospects, or should I say top players like a Darius Leonard, like a Quentin Nelson, and that's just that's unacceptable for the Colts front office to accept anything like that. Um, but overall, I like the trade. Um, again, the money aspect is a big thing, but my biggest concern, first and foremost, who the hell are we bringing in? I don't know. I don't want Jimmy G, the shoulder surgery he just had. He had worse stats than Carson and a better team around him, and he had horrible numbers. So I definitely don't need a guy that can't stay on the field like Carson couldn't and a guy that can't make good decisions like Carson couldn't. Meanwhile, Carson played every single game last year. So I don't really want to go backwards. Now I know what everybody's saying. Where are you going to go? I don't know what Chris Ballard has in mind. I don't know what Jim Ursay has in mind. Um, but I do trust Chris Ballard because he was able to finagle his way into getting capital back for Carson, even after the poor season that he had. And um, I've been saying this for five years since Ballard came on to the, to, to the team as the GM. And Ballard, we trust. And I'm just crossing my fingers and praying to God. Man, it better not be Jimmy Garoppolo, man. I swear. Kevin, that's kind of the conundrum that I have with this whole trade. Now, I understand that the Colts front office, they were not really sold on Carson Wentz. And I think in large part, that was Frank Reich vouching for Carson when they ended up making the trade last season with Philly. It's safe to say, I think it was actually reported that Frank Reich actually had to apologize to... Colts ownership and the front office based on vouching for Carson, knowing that he was only there for one season. So that, that kind of really kind of goes to show that the front office wasn't really sold on Carson to begin with, but really that was Frank trying to salvage the situation at the current moment in time. Now, when it comes to the Colts, the biggest question is, okay, 
Well, now that Carson's gone, who are they going to replace him with? And honestly, there's been a lot of rumors circulating about Jimmy G going to Indianapolis. Kevin is not sold on that one, and, and neither am I. Because when I look at Jimmy G, even though that the 49ers were only a couple plays away from making the Super Bowl this past season, and they did make a Super Bowl in Super Bowl 54 with Jimmy as a starting quarterback, Jimmy G was not the guy, was not the leading force on why the 49ers made those big playoff runs this past season and then a couple years ago when they lost to the Chiefs in Super Bowl 54. It was largely due to their defense and the fact that they, they were able to run the ball consistently as a unit. If Jimmy G were to go to the Indianapolis Colts, I think it would be very similar to what they had with Carson this past season. I think that Jimmy would make some bad timely throws. I think he would make some decent throws here and there. But I just can't rely on Jimmy G with his playmaking ability and his injury history has been riddled right his entire career. Whether it was with New England, whether it's been with the 49ers, it's always been a question mark when it comes to his overall availability. So the Colts are kind of in a conundrum here. I don't really know how they're going to be able to address this. I don't know if they're going to look to possibly draft a quarterback. This upcoming draft that takes place in April. Could they bring somebody in like Derek Carr? Maybe, but do you really want to take that big of a cap hit? It's like Kevin said, you're going to take on a $40 million a year guy when Derek has been inconsistent at times throughout his career. Granted, he did lead the Raiders to a playoff appearance this past season. He might be the best option that you have as far as guys that you could trade for. But I think the Colts are in a little bit of a dicey situation right now. And this is really where you're going to have to really have to rely on Chris Ballard to make the right decisions here. But it's kind of slim pickings here, Kevin. There's really no other way for me to say it. I think when I look at the totality of the trade between Indianapolis and Washington, honestly, I think it's a wash because I don't think that Carson's going to succeed in Washington. I don't really see how he makes that team competitive when you're going up against teams like the Cowboys and the Eagles, who I think are clearly better than what Washington has at this current moment in time. And as far as the Colts are concerned, the Colts have a lot of question marks. And granted, now you don't have a quarterback. It's just, what are you going to do with it now? And there's definitely going to be some issues on who they bring into the fold. Because if they bring in Jimmy Garoppolo, I know Kevin's going to have a freaking panic attack when that happens, just because that is not a guy that he wants as a starting quarterback for the Colts week one. But if I had to guess right now, that's who I think that they're going to try to go with. And that's just kind of how I see it. It better not be Jimmy. I'm just, I, I don't even want to, I don't even want to put it into the universe because I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely going to lose my shit. Like guys, I'm I not ju- trying to get into a rant. It just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Worst statistics can't stay healthy. Almost the same amount of money as Carson literally makes no sense. I'm just saying, when you look at the current, I guess, cachet of quarterbacks that you could trade for or that you could possibly sign, I mean, would you want to bring in Jameis? No. Can't do Russell Wilson because he just got traded to Denver. If I'm being brutally honest, and I mean, I texted you this when the trade happened, I would rather Ellinger, Ellinger, and draft a rookie quarterback. Apparently, the Colts are interested in about two prospects. I'm not saying that this draft class is anything special or that there's quarterbacks that I would be interested in. I would rather take a wash year, build our picks back up for the next, and at the same time, 
we go and we we go and build a rapport for something else for somebody else we go we go and build somebody up why are we going to trade capital for for all the quarterbacks that are currently available or unproven jimmy well, is the Derek. most successful except, except but Derek. jimmy is the product but jimmy's the product of the system yeah but i mean well, uh, when I look at guys that have been in the rumor mill for Indianapolis, I think probably the best quarterback that I've heard so far is Derek Carr. Now, Derek Carr. 40 million, bro. No shot. And the problem is, and you've mentioned this before, outside of Michael Pittman, who do the Colts have at their wideout position? That's another. That's what I'm saying. Like, if we pay him 40, right? Like, 40 a year. If he gets the extension and the sign and trade, whatever the fuck happens. $70 million, 40 is off the table for one year for one person. We are back to square one in which what we have available this year is stupid. I, I, I honestly think when it comes to all this cap space that the Colts have at their disposal now, I think they have to go out and get somebody like Allen Robinson. 100%. If it's not Allen Robinson, I don't know what the hell is happening. He's the only one left in terms of big it, plays. It's either that or maybe you trade for somebody like Michael Thomas. I, I'm just kind of like spitballing here. It's just the biggest thing on the offense right now is obviously the quarterback position because there's nobody there, not anybody of substance. But the immediate upgrade that that offense needs to get is probably the wideout position. Maybe you can make a little bit of a case for the tight end position now that Jack Doyle has retired. I don't really think the offensive line is a huge concern. I know you're happy about Eric Fisher uh, not getting re-signed, but... Overall, the biggest weakness on that team offensively is probably their wideout position because the quarterback spot, that's kind of an up-in-the-air type of situation. We don't really know what's going to happen, but going into this offseason, it was clearly their wideout position. And they yeah, need to and Lyle, need to Collins, that. Lyle Collins is on the trade block for Dallas, right? Um, the star at LSU or Ole Miss, wherever the hell he came from, I don't even remember. He is available for trade. We have a left tackle position opening. Go make a phone call to Dallas. They have enough offensive linemen. Give me somebody. We can't have our blind side being the weakest part. We were bottom 10 in pass protection, or, which is just absolutely weird. Or or you could, you could take the cheaper option and look at draft. Look at the draft. Yeah, now. but we, we have no first-round pick this year. We acquired two second-round picks this year, thankfully. But it's like... I know Ballard, he's probably going to trade back because we need receivers at the most. Like, we literally don't have anybody on this roster outside of Pascal and um, Michael, Pittman. Uh, Michael Pittman Jr. And then, of course, you have uh, Desmond Patton. But he barely gets any playing time. People know him for the game-winning oh, catch yeah, uh, in Arizona. Yeah, but he's more of a special teamer, and he plays in the slot, you know, more for, for those trick plays, those end-around sweeps. He's not necessarily a threat in terms of as a receiver, which is why I'm saying we're literally picking at threads here to name relevant receivers. We need to go into this free agency period and attack the best receiver that is available on the board. And I say we throw a bag at Allen Robinson. I'm man, dead ass. Man, give me credit. I, I, I pulled Doolin out of my ass on that one. I mean, hey, that's because I was, I was praising him as an NFL special teamer all season. I mean, he was, uh, I think, second in special team votes for the Pro Bowl behind Slater, your boy. Slater's. Slater's one of the best special teamers of all time. I mean, yeah, but uh, Doolin had uh, better numbers than Slater this year. Doolin actually led the NFL in special teams tackles, if I'm not mistaken. You know me. I'm always going to slip Ben Slater. Slater's that's fine. Just, that's fine. I'm not Sl- insulting him either. No, it's just, you know, Slater is kind of reaching the end of his career. He's been doing it for so long. It's just, you know, you know, special teams, 
it, it never really gets us the shine that it deserves. But what he was able to bring as far as the stability goes on that facet of the team, he's been just rock solid on that. Can't ask for team. anything more. No, it's, special teams is important, but people sleep on that. People sleep on Always special teams. Will. In it, well, and it's hey, a, people that don't know, that's why. Exactly. Now, with that said, we're going to transition back to the AFC and probably, Kevin, I'd probably say that this is one of the biggest quarterback trades that we've seen in quite some time. Russell Wilson traded to the Denver Broncos from Seattle. And I'll be honest on this one. I wasn't really expecting this. It really kind of, I'm not going to lie, it just, it really shocked me when I saw the news break that Russell got traded to Denver. And I think that was probably in large part due to when the Aaron Rodgers uh, resigning took place with Green Bay. That's something that we'll get to in a little bit. That took place. I mean, this is a hell of a backup option that Denver had in their toolbox. And I, I got to give Denver a lot of credit for being able to pull off this trade. Now, Kevin, when you look at Russell Wilson, I mean, Russell Wilson is, you know, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL. He's in the prime of his career. And when you look at what he brings to Denver, Denver already has a pretty limited roster on the offensive side of the ball. They have a pretty solid up-and-coming defense as well. Denver Broncos look like no joke going into the season. Now, Kevin, to get this one to you, just what do you think the impact will be now that Russell Wilson is with the Broncos? I think that he immediately puts them in a top AFC contention spot. Um, People will make the argument Super Bowl contenders, but there are too many quarterbacks out there that – you can make the argument that, you know, they're all Super Bowl contenders. But we've been saying this for a long time. Since Peyton Manning has left the Denver Broncos, they have had nine or ten starting quarterbacks in the six-year period. They tried a bunch of experiments. They did the Brock Osweiler thing. They obviously tried the Teddy Bridgewater experiment. They tried Drew Locke, Paxton Lynch, so many different names that have just come out in the last couple of years that just did not pan out. And Denver's a quarterback away from competing in the playoffs. Let's be honest. They were a top 10 defense last year, and they traded Von Miller, who rumor has it, you know, with his Instagram um, campaign, so to speak, it looks like he is trying to come back to Denver. So that's another story for another day. But if you go and bring Von Miller back, it's just, again, another weapon on that defensive side. Offensively, Jerry Judy, Cortland Sutton, Tim Patrick, and then Javante Williams. That's probably one of the best offenses that Russell Wilson will have had in his entire career. Now, a stat that I actually found out a couple of days ago when the trade happened, Russell Wilson is the most sacked quarterback since 2018 with 189 sacks. Russell Wilson has no time to throw the ball. Russell Wilson has absolutely no consistency on the play calling aspect while he was in Seattle because they were a run first team. And they would only throw in emergency situations. And by that time, Seattle was always down because their defense was so bad. Kyle and I talked about this. They haven't had a defense since the Legion of Boom. And that was literally almost more than, what was that, 10 years ago, Kyle? Super Bowl 48? No, it was about six years ago. About six. I'm talking about full capacity, everybody healthy, everybody in their prime. That'd be Super Bowl 49. 40. That's the point I'm trying to make. You know what I'm saying? Like, they have not been dominant, assertive, consistent in almost a decade. So I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you have a top 10 defense, you have a great receiving core, you have a great running back who's young in Javante Williams, and you have a solid offensive line. Not the greatest, but not the worst, and I would say probably more than likely better than Seattle because it's really hard to get worse than Seattle. But 
I'm looking at this team and I'm saying, you put him in a, in, in a situation to win right now. He's in the prime of his career, like Kyle said. He obviously is, has a, a brand new rookie head coach in the offensive coordinator that came from uh, Green Bay. Of course, I'm forgetting his name because my brain is ridiculously slow. Um, and I'm saying, we all know the offense that was run in Green Bay. And we know that he coached Aaron Rodgers. You're telling me if you put that man as the head coach and runs the offense, he's not going to, to favor his mobile dual threat quarterback who's got a great arm, who's known for accuracy and is clutch in game-winning situations. The Denver Broncos were what seven and nine last year, seven and ten, eight and something, right? I can't remember. I just for the for the life of me. The point is, what I'm trying to get at is from that competitiveness that they had earlier on in the season to collapsing towards the end. Because at the end of the day, you know, you you need a competent quarterback. Teddy Bridgewater gets hurt. You have to rely back on Drew Locke. Just it didn't work out. You insert Russell Wilson on that team last season, this team goes to the playoffs. There's no doubt about it. And I guarantee you this is going to go down as one of the most scrutinized trades in NFL history because of everything Denver had to give up to acquire him, which was two first-round picks, two second-round picks, a a fifth-round pick, Drew Locke, Shelby Harris, and Noah Fant, who is their starting tight end from the University of Iowa. All for Russell Wilson. And like I think a fourth round pick, so Denver has to give up an arm and a leg, and then maybe a foot to get Russell Wilson. I say it's all worth it, bro. You are literally a quarterback away from competing for another Super Bowl. You have to go all in. Kevin, I'm with you 100 percent on this one. I think that they're definitely a legitimate threat in the AFC as far as the Denver Broncos are concerned with bringing Russell Wilson into the fold. But I'm not going to say that they're immediately a Super Bowl contender, and here's why. When I look at the Broncos from top to bottom, this roster on the offensive side of the ball, the defensive side of the ball, they're definitely young, but they're rising. It's just, when I look at other teams in the AFC West right now, they got some pretty stiff competition, though. You look at KC. KC has pretty much owned that division the last three or four seasons with Patrick Mahomes at the helm. You look at the Chargers. The Chargers just added Leo Mack to that defense to go alongside Joey Boza on their front four. And it would seem to me that Justin Herbert is taking leaps and bounds in his career. And I think he will even advance those even more so when he goes into year three of his NFL career. And then you look at the Raiders. The Raiders were a playoff team this past season with Derek Carr at the helm. So when you look at the AFC West from top to bottom, all of these teams are going to be super competitive this year. Now, where do the Broncos fall in line now that Russell Wilson's in the fold? I think they will set themselves apart as the second best team in that division. So I would see them making the playoffs this upcoming season, but it will be as a wild cards team because they have to show me that they could actually run it with the Kansas City Chiefs because the Chiefs have been largely dominant, not just in the AFC West, but they've been the dominant team by and large in the AFC for the last three to four seasons, like I mentioned. And I like the fact that Russell adds that leadership value to that quarterback spot, which to be quite honest with you, they've been missing a leader at that quarterback position since Peyton Manning last played with them. I think in 2015 was the last season that he played for the Broncos you know, when you get Russell Wilson into the fold, he's going to be an immediate upgrade to the locker room. He's going to be a stand-up guy. He was that his entire career in Seattle. I have no doubts that he'll 
he's going to bring that to Denver. He'll bring that instantaneously. And I think just looking at this year specifically upcoming for the, the Denver Broncos, I think their youth will get more experienced. I think that they are going to be a successful team this year. I just can't say that, you know, just because you add Russell Wilson, this team is immediately going to the Super Bowl. I can't make that jump yet. I don't want to be prisoner of the moment and just go all in on the hype train that is the Denver Broncos. But Russell Wilson in the fold, that is an immediate upgrade. I think it was a trade that had to be made just because they've had basically a carousel of talent at that quarterback spot since Peyton Manning left. you got a rock-solid quarterback there. He's probably going to be the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos for the next couple of years. That's just the way that I see it. And I think when it's all said and done, it definitely puts them in the conversation eventually to be a Super Bowl contending team. I just don't see it immediately. I think maybe a year or two down the road, maybe you can make that case. Just not this season, though. That's just how I see it. No, and I, again, I agree in terms of not necessarily going right at this and saying Super Bowl first year. But when you insert somebody of that that magnitude, that pedigree, Caliber. you exactly you have to say that Russell is up there in that echelon. Granted, a lot of the quarterbacks right now, as we've mentioned so many times this year, are all under the age of like 26 years old. Mm-hmm. You put Russell, a 32, 33-year-old veteran who's been to the Super Bowl twice, who has a couple of MVP nods, like he's been in the conversation for one of the best players in the NFL, has been dealing with the mediocrity that is Seattle over the last several years. You know he's had a chip on his shoulder. You know that Denver is a team that takes risks on quarterbacks because John Elway has always been that guy to say, you know what, I'm going to go get this guy. And no matter what it costs, I'm going to make it happen. When Peyton left Indy and they said it was impossible for him to sign, he went out there and he got him. And they went to two Super Bowls. And they went and broke almost every NFL offensive record known to man. So who's to say this isn't history repeating itself? Kudos to the Broncos front office for getting it done. Seattle's in a full rebuild mode. Tyler Lockett's looking to be moved. They're looking to move Jamal Adams. DK Metcalf is still in his rookie year, so he'll probably end up opting out. Rookie contract, excuse me. And he'll probably end up either asking for a trade or just not opting into that rookie deal or fourth or fifth year option, whatever it ends up being. So, hey, man, I, 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 last point, I find it hysterical that Jamal Adams forced his way out of New York because he didn't want to be a part of a rebuild. And now Here we are again. Do again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Seattle's a full rebuild at this point. And I, I don't really know if Pete Carroll is going to be the guy that actually lead them to some sort of success with this rebuild because you know, look, Pete Carroll is in his seventies at this point. He doesn't really carry that same swagger and intensity that he used to bring when that Legion of boom was really popping off in the early 2000, excuse me, the mid 2010s. And, and when I look at the Seahawks as a whole, Their defense has been subpar ever since the Legion of Boom. They haven't been able to replace that element of the team. Their run game has been inconsistent just because no matter who they have at their their disposal, they always find a way to get hurt. The offensive line has been in shambles the last couple seasons. It's bad. It's really bad. And I don't really know how Seattle's going to be able to try to figure this out as far as their rebuild goes because, dude, the way that I see it, it's not looking good. This is looking like, if I had to say right now, this is like a four or five win team next season. Like it, it, I, Russell was really kind of essentially keeping them afloat. They, well, he was bandaging the holes that this team had top to bottom just because 
And when you have a guy like that that is just putting up, you know, insane numbers consistently year in and year out, despite the fact that he was getting sacked that many times. Now that you don't have that, it's going to be really tough for Seattle to kind of make any sort of significant playoff run. And they struggled mightily last year with Russell at the helm. So if that happens, wait till this season, bro. It's going to be bad. But yeah. with that said, we're going to kick it back to the NFC for a little bit. We're going to focus on Aaron Rodgers re-signing with the Green Bay Packers. Also make a mention that the Packers did franchise tag Devontae Adams. So they will have Aaron Rodgers and Devontae Adams back in the fold going into next season. I know Kevin's probably a little bit disappointed just because I'd say probably the last couple of months or so, like Kevin was dead set on Aaron Rodgers not returning to the fold just because that had really been kind of the indication leading up until we heard the news a couple of days ago that Aaron Rodgers was going to resign with the Packers. And we don't really know what the specifics of the contracts um, for Aaron Rodgers is. We've heard reportedly that it's somewhere around $200 million. It was a four-year deal. Those reports have been, I guess, backtracked to a certain extent because I know Pat McAfee and Aaron Rodgers kind of both stated that that number technically isn't true. So really the way that I see it, it's a four-year deal. If I had to guess, that contract is somewhere in between 160 to $200 million. It's probably somewhere in that range when it's all said and done. Now, Kevin, to take this one to you, with Aaron Rodgers resigned and Devontae Adams' franchise tag, do you think that the Packers are going to be a legitimate Super Bowl contender this season and then the subsequent years after? No. Bluntly, no. I mean, what did you do differently this offseason that you didn't do last year? Aside from re-sign Aaron and Devontae, but you lose key players. But Preston Smith, gone. More than likely, Randall Cobb, gone. What is it? I think Mardell, uh, Scantley, Zedarius, Zedarius Smith, Valdez Scantley. What the hell? Marquez? It's Marquez Valdez Scantley. There is rumor that he's asking for too much. So Green Bay is definitely not going to be able to bring him back. So you go and lose multiple offensive players, two impactful defensive players. Jair Alexander is looking to get an extension. But now that Aaron and Devontae are holding so much money between the two of them, and Devontae's up once again for a contract extension or a brand new contract, should I say, next season, how do you pay one of your best players? Green Bay has tied themselves into such a suicide knot. And I hate to have to reference it like that, but this is all that I get it. Aaron Rodgers is one of the best players in the league. Aaron Rodgers is coming off of his fourth NFL MVP. Aaron Rodgers is having probably the best stretch of seasons, regular season wise, that quarterbacks have had in NFL history in terms of consistency and dominance, in terms of touchdown versus interception ratio. It's been nuts. But he is becoming a Peyton Manning. He has won one Super Bowl, and he is a dominant regular season quarterback, but just can't get it done in the postseason. I hate to have to use that reference because Peyton Manning's my favorite player, and obviously, athletically saying, Aaron Rodgers is a better quarterback than Peyton Manning because of what he's able to do with his legs, his arm strength, his ability to roll out of the pocket and make all those fancy throws, which Peyton was never able to do, just strictly a pocket-passing quarterback who was able to annihilate the line of scrimmage and just schematically against the defense. But when you look at that what Green Bay has assembled, or should I say what Green Bay has tried to do over the last couple of years, 
they tried to bring in talent a few years back, and they their peak was the NFC Championship against Tom Brady, and they threw that away. Last year, they lost to the 49ers at home. You want to be in Lambeau in January. You want to be at home in the playoffs. You want people to come and face you in the tundra. Aaron wasn't able to produce shit. So I'm looking at Green Bay, and I'm saying, yeah, they're going to win the division because Minnesota's not going to compete with them. Obviously, Chicago is doing what they're doing, and then Detroit is Detroit. So, woohoo! you're going to win the NFC North. I don't see anybody competing in the, out of that. I don't see them winning. I say that the Rams can beat them. I think that the freaking uh, I think that the Cardinals can beat them if the Cardinals can find a way to bring some people back and get it done and bring the band back together. And I'm just looking who else? Um, there's I think that the 49ers if they get the right quarterback just because of the team that they have together, I think that they can beat them. There's just too many teams that I can see looking at this Green Bay team and say. Yeah, I think they'll go to the Super Like, no, I don't, I don't see it. And I think that Aaron asking for this much money solidifies him as one of the most selfish players in NFL history, man. I, I can't really shake that narration because even if the $200 million isn't right, the guaranteed money that is rumored is $153 million guaranteed. Where is Green Bay supposed to get money? Where is Green Bay supposed to sign people to help you? I don't know. Kevin, I think it's dead in the water as far as their Super Bowl chances go, whether it's this season or in the near future after this season, just because when you look at Aaron Rodgers throughout the totality of his career, he's always been able to provide Green Bay a great regular season, but he's fallen short. And the reason why is not because of the play on the field. It's just that he leaves the Packers in such a terrible space as far as their cap space goes. They can't bring anybody in to bolster not only the offensive side of the ball, but the defensive side of the ball as well. When you look at Aaron Rodgers, now granted, the cap number going into this season for Aaron Rodgers specifically is $46 million. Yeah, I think the only player that has a higher cap hit than Aaron Rodgers is Matt Ryan. And I think Matt Ryan is getting paid, uh, or his cap hit is $48 million for the Falcons next season. When you look at that, and you attach it to what the cap number for the NFL is this upcoming season, it's at $208 million. If you do, what, 46 divided by 208, 46 million divided by 208 million, it's around 22%. If the Packers were to win the Super Bowl this year, I think he'd be like the first quarterback in NFL history to be able to bring a Super Bowl to that team despite having a cap hit higher than 20% for that team. It's just that when you look at that, it's like, who, who are you going to be able to bring in? I mean, they had the franchise tag Devontae Adams. And we all know that Devontae is going to want a contract extension. His cap hit going into this year was $20 million. And I imagine when he gets into contract negotiations after this season, it's going to be upward of at least $25 million. I know it was reported that he had, eventually wanted to get somewhere around that $30 million a year mark. I just don't see that happening with Green Bay moving forward. If I look at it, this is the year that they go for it. And I don't think they're going to have any sort of shot to make the Super Bowl after this season. Because once you look at this team after this season, I think it's just it goes downhill. Aaron Rodgers will be able to continue to put up good numbers. He may even rival, you know, some MVP type numbers just because he is just a great consistent quarterback throughout the regular season. But in the playoffs, he comes up short. 
he's had ample opportunities to get to the Super Bowl the last decade. And time and time again, he falls short, whether it's in the NFC Divisional Round, whether it's in the NFC Championship game, he just doesn't get it done. And it is partially on him because when you look at other players, I'll I'll take Tom Brady, for example. When Tom Brady went to the Buccaneers, Tom Brady did not have the cap hit that Aaron Rodgers had for their respective teams. Tom Brady sacrificed to a certain extent to be able to allow the Buccaneers to have a little bit more flexibility with their cap space. Aaron Rodgers does not give the Packers that same idea. And that really kind of puts the Packers in a bind because they're limited they're limited on what they can do as far as re-signing top players that they have on the roster or possibly bringing some top flight free agents. They just don't have that same flexibility. And that's really where it falls on Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers wants to win his way. He wants to get paid top dollar and be able to win a Super Bowl. And it's just not going to happen. I just don't see it happening. If it's going to happen, it'll be this season. But after that, there's no shot that the Packers win a Super Bowl, and let alone get to one. They haven't gotten to a Super Bowl since 2010. In Super Bowl, I think it was Super Bowl 45. It's been over a decade. And the way that this roster is constructed, there is no way they are going to make a Super Bowl this year and the years after. If they even get there, I think they'll be lucky. because. I think Aaron Rodgers has put them in a bind, and I just don't see how the Packers can be a viable Super Bowl team despite having a guy like Aaron Rodgers at the fold. That's just how I see it. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have any other points, so we'll just move on to the final NFL segment. And, guys, that is going to be the Calvin Ridley situation. The Atlanta Falcons wide receiver has been suspended for the 2022 season for gambling Illegally uh, against the NFL policy, uh, I believe it was a total of $1,500 was bet uh, both on his on his mobile phone and he was not at home in Atlanta. So he did it out of state and he also tried to do it not illegally, but obviously knowing it's against NFL policy just puts him in a bad position. So he has been suspended for the uh, for the foreseeable game uh, for the foreseeable season coming forward. So, Kyle. Uh, let me just get your thoughts, man. Do you think that Calvin Ridley was rightfully punished to the uh, fullest extent of this suspension? Well, I do think that the NFL did punish him pretty severely when it comes to this year-long suspension. I'm of the mindset that I think the year-long suspension is a little bit harsh. I think he definitely deserves a suspension, but a year does seem a little bit excessive to me. I mean, when I look at Calvin Ridley, I, I thought what he did was incredibly stupid. But I don't think it deserves a year-long suspension. So when I look at Calvin Ridley, I mean, Calvin Ridley was scheduled to make a round, I think it was in between like 10 to $11 million this season. I don't have the specific number, but I know it was somewhere around like 10 to $11 million coming season. And really the only question that I could kind of raise when it comes to Calvin's decision-making is this. Was betting $1,500 worth it if it could have potentially cost you 10 to $11 million this upcoming season? And that's a pretty rhetorical question, but it goes without saying that Calvin had to be smarter in this situation because when you look at Calvin going into this offseason, Calvin was a major piece as far as these trade rumors go. He was linked to possibly going to the Patriots. There were some other teams possibly looking at him as well in some sort of trade package. I think the Dallas Cowboys 
were mentioned in rumors as well. There were a lot of teams that were definitely going to look at his services and think we could definitely bring Calvin Ridley into the fold and it would definitely bolster that wide receiving core wherever he goes. Now, this past season, he did miss a bunch of games because he took some time off for, for some personal matters that he had to attend to. I don't know if it was just because of this whole betting thing that he was doing outside of football, but Calvin, when you look at the grand scheme of things, he's relatively young. He's relatively healthy because he missed a large portion of this past season due to personal matters. But when it comes to this, this gambling issue, you got to be smarter. I'm not saying that this deserved a year long suspension. I mean, for God's sakes, we've seen NFL players in the past beat their own wives and they've received less games as far as the suspension goes than what Calvin Ridley just got. And hell, I mean, we've seen guys get suspended for, you know, more games when it comes to substance abuse issues like smoking marijuana. Now, granted, you know, those are multiple violations and the way that the NFL treats that is a little bit different. But even with that said, a year-long suspension is a little bit steep for me. I would have been content with like maybe like four to six games if if it comes to this betting situation that Calvin got himself into. Year's a little bit excessive, but... It's like I said, was betting $1,500 worth it if it was going to cost you like $11 million? And that's a pretty easy answer. It, no. And that's really just how I see it. Yeah, Kyle, full agreement. Um, I think that the punishment was a little too steep. I mean, first and foremost, I'm not going to sit here and try to get into what is appropriate and what rules are okay because obviously we are not professional athletes. We are not a part of the NFL in any way, shape, or form. But when you look at it, $1,500 to me and you is a whole different concept to an NFL player. I'm not saying that he went out there, he bet his house, or he bet $5 million, or he bet like his future contract that he didn't even have yet, and he's in massive gambling debt or anything like that. But from what I'm understanding, which again, I could be incorrect, he bet when he wasn't even playing. He was partaking in gambling instances to where he was not even on the field to contribute to, uh, to the outcome of said game. Now, if he was gambling mid-quarter, halftime, while he was suited up, if he magically turned it on or had a couple of convenient drops or a sudden fumble, then I'd be like, wow, that's a dirty player. I don't necessarily understand the issue between Calvin Ridley gambling on something he's not actually live and engaged in, like contributing to a loss or his beneficial or financial gain, should I say. So to get a year for $1,500 – and Kyle made the, the, the point, Jay Williams, Stephen A., and, and plenty of other analysts and, and, and other uh, commentators. These players are beating people. These players are, are doing illegal activities. These players are just running amok in their personal lives, and they're getting minimal suspensions. Now, granted, the Henry Rugg situation is a whole different, you know, whole different realm because you know somebody died and he's in jail and all these different things. But, dude, you're telling me people can beat their wives, can beat their kids, can – can be seen assaulting people in clubs and, and, and just get out and get away with it, and it's totally fine. Like, oh, they'll be reinstated soon enough. How many people got to get away with substance abuse, like Kyle said? How many people got to get minimal suspensions and get reinstated over and over? I mean, Josh Gordon is a prime example who has literally been banned from the NFL, I think, twice. Like, how many times you got to give this man second chances? This kid gambled a, 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 a toilet paper, a toilet paper amount of his salary – to bet on some games. Again, I get it. It's wrong. I'm not justifying the fact that he should be doing it, but it's like, 
when you look at the grand scheme of things, how relevant is that to an NFL team's overall income? How is that going to affect the Falcons? How is that going to affect the NFL? But you're telling me the reputation of an NFL organization while he has a wife beater, while he has a womanizer, while he has a, a drug addict, while he has t- t- just a bad person on the team gets two to six games? Come on, man. Like, this just looks bad on the NFL's image, man. Like, they're so focused on the money aspect. Even if it's $1,500, they don't give a shit about what their players are doing off the field in their personal lives. So I agree with Kyle. The suspension is definitely needed, but to be an entire season? Definitely not smart. I don't think that was fair. Yeah, but, you know, the the thing is, you know, we could kind of look at the past as far as just certain suspensions that were levied by the NFL, and you can kind of make criticisms based on those individual cases that arose, you know, specifically like the domestic violence ones or the substance abuse ones. You could criticize those, you know, for those decisions that were made at the time. With this one, though, this was a little bit different because I actually can't really remember the last time that an NFL player was suspended because of a gambling uh, issue. I, I, it's, you'd have to kind of go back a while for me to actually find one because I really can't remember one off the top of my head. I mean, you hear like the substance abuse ones all the time. You know, you never want to hear the ones when it involves domestic violence just because, you know, obviously that's just terrible, but they do come up every now and then. When it comes to this, the basic point is, is like it goes against the, I guess, the integrity of the game. I guess that's what they'll say. But, you know, do I think that it was worth a year suspension? No. It's like I said, definitely deserves some games. I thought he was incredibly stupid knowing that you could potentially lose your entire salary for one season if you were to do something like that. And that's just. You have to focus in on personal responsibility in this case. Calvin was not personally responsible. He should have known better. Now, with that said, I don't think that that suspension should have been as harsh as it was, but Calvin should have known better. You know, it's it's just one of those things. It's just, you could criticize, like, I understand both points that, that are being made. Like, there's there would be a group of people that will say, well, Calvin should have known better because... You know, it goes against the integrity of the game. There's another side of the equation saying, well, I mean, he only gambled. It wasn't like he hurt somebody. It wasn't like he hit somebody. It wasn't like he was, you know, breaking like a substance abuse policy. You know, this is not the same. This is not as harsh as they're making it out to be. Yet the suspension is extremely harsh. I just, you know, for me, a suspension definitely needed to be made here. But not it, not a season. That's just that's just too heavy for me. But you know, this is how I see it. But so that will end our NFL discussion. I know we had plenty of stuff to talk about, but yeah. guys, we've been away. We've been away for a little bit. Yeah, Kev, we got some NBA topics to hit, and um, yeah, we do. I, I I I think you're gonna have some fun with this one, because, dude, we saw an epic beatdown. The Brooklyn Nets go on the road and beat the Philadelphia 76ers by the score of 129 to 100 on the road. An almost 30-point ass-whooping against the new-look 76ers. I mean, KD was on fire. Seth Curry was on fire. Kyrie Irving was on fire. It was just a nonstop barrage from Brooklyn the entire game against the 76ers. 
Philly fans were leaving at the end of the third quarter going into the fourth quarter. It was just that bad of a game from Philadelphia overall. I mean, you know, not to really dive into it too much, but just an epic beatdown from the Nets over this new look 76ers team. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, just what is your overall take about the Nets just giving the 76ers an absolute ass whooping Thursday night? Where where my Sixers fans at? What were we just talking about last week? Where 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 my Harden and Embiid or the new Shaq and Kobe? Where are my Sixers fans? Oh, we're going to the finals. Oh, we the best team in the league. Da 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 da. Where y'all at? Just like Kyle got his aggression with the Knicks, now I'm coming at the Sixers fan base, and I'm more than willing to take all the scrutiny because what did I say last week? Y'all gonna come across a good team that's gonna whoop y'all ass. You're going to see the lack of effort from Harden. You're going to see the the, the, the the issues with Embiid. You're going to see the team just completely fall apart but right in front of your face. And what happened? The guy that you traded away didn't even play. And y'all lost by 29 points. Let's just round it up. Y'all lost by 30 at home to KD and Kyrie, a man that plays half the year, to your superstar tandem, to your elite tandem. Don't ever disrespect Kobe and Shaq like that again. Y'all couldn't even beat a team with a definitive center with Andre Drummond being the shell of a player that he used to be. Joel should have eaten his ass, bro. And, I, you know, I paused. That was a terrible sentence. But Joel should have destroyed him. James Harden should have cooked last night. Or should I say today? Because y'all going to be hearing this, you know, obviously in the morning. But what happened? I don't understand. Where, where, where's all the hype? James Harden had 11. He was a, a plus minus, a negative 30. We got Joel Embiid with 27 points, but he's 5 of 17 from the, from the field, so he made all his, all his points at the free throw line. But I think that's a, a plus minus a negative 30, Kyle, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we're looking at Tobias Harris, the guy that you guys said was trash, who was 5 of 10 from the field, which is 50% for those of you that can't do math. He was 4 of 5 from 3, which is one missed field goal from the three-point line. He was a negative 24 in the plus minus, but he had 16 efficient points. So once again, I stand by that. If you give him looks, he will play efficiently, but neither here nor there. So we're looking at this and we're saying, you know what? Maybe we got to give him a pass. Maybe Brooklyn had some players that were hurt. You know what? They didn't. Kyrie, KD, Andre Drummond, Seth Curry, they were loaded, but they were missing the guy that y'all traded away that you bashed the second he landed in Philly or, or got off the bus in Philadelphia, didn't even play. You guys put so much effort into booing the shit out of Ben Simmons. You forgot that you had a whole basketball team that sucked today. Okay? A hundred points. There's all you can score against this Brooklyn team, who is known for horrid, horrid, horrid defense. Ben didn't even play, and you gave up 130 points. I know I keep rounding up one point, but it's just funnier that way to me. So when you look at that Jordan, uh, excuse me, that Kobe and Shaq comparison, with the Joel and James Harden comparison. I'm not really getting that vibe tonight. You know, I'm not really seeing the positivity that Philly had just a week ago when they beat some shitty-ass teams. Now, granted, Brooklyn is in the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings in terms of out of the top eight seeds, and they still mop the floor with you. KD ain't even have to drop 30 on y'all for you to get embarrassed because everybody was eating. Bro, KD had 25, Bruce Brown had 11, Obviously, Andre Drummond isn't anybody of a score. He had seven points. Kyrie had 22. Seth had 24. Freaking James Johnson off the bench, that old man, had 16. Petty Mills had 10 points. Claxton had nine points. 
Yeah, well, what happened? I don't understand. James Harden was just averaging triple doubles. Joel Embiid was in the MVP conversation for being a dominant physical force. The last time we've seen something like that was Shaq. They're saying that he was better than Jokic. Y'all couldn't even beat the AC Brooklyn Nets without Ben Simmons. So come on, I want to hear it. I really do. Y'all better remember y'all place in the Eastern Conference, man, because there are teams just like this at the top, whether that be Chicago, whether that be Milwaukee, and whether that be damn Brooklyn at the A seed. You better recognize, because there were plenty of instances where James Harden just lost the ball, no effort to get it back. Horrible shot selection, no effort to get it back on defense. And he just kept pulling. So what are you going to do? What, what, what was James Harden shooting percentage today? He was 3 of 17. I can't do math, but I know that's damn well under 30% from the field. So we're really going to sit here and just say, well, you know what? He had an off game. No, he played a real basketball team with a competitive opposing team, and y'all sucked. So I'm going to rebuttal every single Philadelphia fan that came at me sideways just a week ago and say, I told you so. This is what's going to happen in the postseason if you don't ship up. James Harden and Joel Embiid are nothing and never will be anything in that Kobe and Shaq comparison. Let that be stated tonight for the rest of our lives. Don't ever use that sentence ever again yeah but there's not really much left for me to add it just really like what's going on bro like what's good lost by 30 points i granted i know it's 29 but i'm gonna round it up i'm gonna round it up to 30 in this case you're playing at home and you're going up against the team that was involved in probably the biggest trade this season ben simmons going to brooklyn you got James Harden coming into the fold for Philly. And James was a shell of himself Thursday night. I mean, 3 of 17. Kevin, that's under 15% from the field. That's atrocious. And it wasn't like Joel Embiid was any better. Joel Embiid was 5 of 17. I mean, this is a 1-2 combination that Philly has with Joel and James Harden. And they combined for what? 8 of 34, that's atrocious. That's just, you can't have that. And Philly is one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. But man, when you lose by damn near 30 points to Brooklyn, I know Brooklyn's really kind of on the rise just because they do have Kyrie back. They do have Kevin Durant in the fold. Like, this is a good team that Brooklyn has. But I think the one guy that probably took it the most personally was probably Seth Curry. Seth Curry dropped 24 points, was damn near the leading scorer for the Nets in that matchup against the 76ers. And it was just a runaway game. I mean, Kevin, we were talking about this game as it was going on. I think it got to a 36-point lead for Brooklyn at one point in the fourth quarter. It was just that bad of a beatdown. And when you look at this, granted, this is just one game, but we're only about a month, month and a half away from the playoffs starting. And if you're Philly... This is not something that's going to boost confidence going into the latter part of the season because, man, Brooklyn's going to have a lot of confidence. They're going to get a lot of swagger from this game because when they could beat down a team like this on the road, put up 130 points in the process, and essentially have that home team's fan base lead in mass at the end of the third quarter going into the fourth quarter, Philly is down bad right now. Hopefully they kind of learn from their mistakes in this game. They rebound quick, fast, and in a hurry. But me, I'm looking at Brooklyn. 
Brooklyn's getting a, a lot of confidence at the right time. See what happens with Kyrie and the whole vaccine mandate situation going on in New York. But I'm, I, we said it before. Kyrie is able to play those home games if they get rid of that vaccine mandate in New York. Brooklyn is basically ready to go to the finals if that's the case because Kyrie has been absolutely balling out in the away games for Brooklyn this season. Kevin Durant is fully healthy. This team looks ready to rock and roll. And that's how good Brooklyn is at this current moment in time. But Philly, they got to get it together and they got to get it together fast. I just find it funny, man. Kyle, I told you, a lot of people coming in my mentions, a lot of people are coming at me through my phone, text messaging and all that saying, oh man, how could you be so critical about Philadelphia? They just won three in a row. Da, da, da. I said it, bro. Go play a real basketball team and come talk to me. First real team you play, you get smacked up. That That's happens. fine, though. That That's happens. fine. Bro, 8 of 34, though, for both Joel and Jimmy. That, that's bad. That's really bad. I mean, yep. no, I, hey, I love it. I, I mean, dude, that, that's like a that's a stat line that I usually, you know, walk away with from, you know, playing 1v1 basketball on the court. Like, 8 of 34, like, that's pretty much my stat line. But, oof, that, oof, no, absolutely not. Now, unfortunately, we got another topic to bring up. I know this is probably going to bring one, Kevin, a lot of pain. Um, <sighs> Got to talk about the Mavericks a little bit. Now, the Mavericks overall this season have been playing very well. They are one of the higher seeds in the Western Conference at this current moment in time. But they had a pretty bad loss against the New York Knicks just a couple of nights ago. For some odd reason, the Mavericks have a very difficult time of beating the Knicks when Luka Doncic first arrived to the Dallas Mavericks. And it seems like that trend has continued. But Kevin, I got to get your thoughts. Just what was your feelings about the Knicks just absolutely beating down the Mavericks. Dude, I I said it to my girl who was on the couch with me watching the game. Right at tip-off, I said, we're about to get our asses whooped. I'm in a group chat with some of my boys. Shout out to Santino and, and Big Kev Ramirez. Uh, you know, we always talk about a bunch of different sports stuff. But I literally said, yo, we're about to get crushed. And they both said, Kev, you're crazy. You guys are in the West. The Knicks suck. Da, 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 da. I was like, yo, I'm telling you right now. We cannot beat this team for whatever reason in the last couple of seasons. Since the KP trade, pretty much, we have not been able to beat the Knicks like at all. Dude, 107 to 77. So in case Philly fans come at me sideways, yes, we actually did lose by 30. You guys lost by 29. We actually lost by a full 30 points to one of the worst teams in the NBA. 10 games under 500. Nowhere near a playoff contention spot outside of maybe a playing tournament if they were to win a couple of games in a row. We're sitting there fighting for the four C. We go and lose to, to the Knicks. Luka Doncic has absolutely gotten on my fucking nerves. I've, I've literally been saying this all season, and everybody keeps defending him. He's young. He's getting better. He'll calm down. He's got 14 fucking texts because he doesn't know how to stop bitching after every possession. He thinks he gets hit on every single possession. He thinks that he's getting smacked up and he's earned the right to get a whistle every time he touches the goddamn floor. Listen, I don't know what the hell you did in Europe, bro, but you just can't throw yourself into another player. You can't just flail your arms up into somebody. You can't just drive into five people knowing that they're going to jump at you and complain when you don't get a call. The ref ain't blow the whistle. Get your ass back on defense. Now, I will give him credit. He is the only one that scored in double figures last night outside of Spencer Dinwiddie, who had 13. Luca had 31. My issue is the rest of the team absolutely shit the bed. 
Dorian Finney-Smith, nine points. Reggie Bullock, zero. Dwight Powell, eight, which is a lot for him. Uh, Jalen Brunson, one of our best players, three of 12 from the field. He had eight. Maxi Kleba, two. Bertans, fucking zero. Sterling Brown, zero. Trey Burke, four. And then Josh Green, two. So you're telling me that Luka Doncic, although he has complained the entire game, has to go out there and drop 31 points with a negative plus minus, but the rest of you can't even give me 10 points? Spencer Dinwiddie had the worst night he's had as a Maverick going 3 of 8 from the field, and he's got to give me 13 points? I don't understand why the Mavs do this. We always compete and play so tough against some of the best teams in the league. We lost to Phoenix late in the game because we couldn't knock a shot down. We beat Golden State twice. We just come off a win against Utah. And you're going to tell me we're playing the Knicks at home in Dallas and we can't beat them? We can't be one of the worst teams in the league? I mean, for God's sakes, we ain't even fucking have to play against some of their best players. Like, Julius Randle had a great night scoring 26, but R.J. Barrett had 18, Fournier had 10, Burks had, Burks had fucking 15 on 4 of 13 from the field. Mitchell Robinson beat us basically on one leg. He had 11 points and 11 boards with three blocks. Like, we just got ran off the floor in our own court. Like, I don't even remember the last time Taj Gibson had double points, like double-digit points. He had 11. Like, are you kidding me right now? We literally let a scrub team mop the floor with us at home and not just embarrass us. They just they, they, they blew the doors off of us. We scored 12 points in the fourth quarter, Kyle. We scored more than 20 points in one quarter of that game. And that was in the third quarter. We scored 31. We scored 17 in the first, 17 again in the second, 31 in the goddamn third, and then 12 in the fourth. That is absolutely unacceptable. That is like repulsively unacceptable. Every time we try to close the gap and we made it like a 10-point lead, an 11-point lead, they just, they just continued to do what they were doing. And they just they did, they got all the shots they wanted. They were able to capitalize on a lot of offensive rebounds because we just don't know how to rebound the basketball. And we couldn't knock a shot in. So I'm looking at Dallas and I'm saying it's games like this that have me worried that when the postseason comes, we're going to be another fucking first-round exit because we don't know how to get it done. I cannot stress this enough. I'm tired of Nick fans blowing me up. My friends, again, it's nothing hatred. It's just funny that this is their playoff game against us every year. And they got every right to talk shit, bro. They just hand us our asses every time we play them. And I have no idea why. So just like I said about Philly, we got to get our shit together too because this is just not acceptable this late in the season. I mean, Kevin, it could be worse. I mean, you could be in my situation where the Lakers just lost to the Houston fucking Rockets the other night in overtime and got freaking blitzed in overtime. But, I mean, you guys are sitting pretty in, like, the fifth spot in the Western Conference. So it's like, I mean, it could be worse. You do know that, right? Like, you could be oh, trust me, I'm, I'm well aware. I'm going through. Like, I, I'm basically, like, I'm done with the Lakers. I don't want to talk about them. <laughs> I don't want to talk about them in a segment. We don't have a segment for them uh, this episode. God forbid if we did. But uh, y'all, y'all would be straight. You had a bad game. Granted, I know you guys have... I don't know why you guys have sucked against the Knicks this much. But overall, y'all are fine. Y'all would be good. It's a bad game. I'm just tired of it being against the same fucking team. But, I mean, 30-point loss, bro. That's, I know. That's bad. what I'm saying, bro. It's like Luka Doncic in his career against the Knicks. 
is zero four at home. It's not good. One. I think we. I think it, we might home. have. I think. I think we have one win against the Knicks in the last like two three years. I'm not even joking. God, I mean, maybe one. It, it, God, if you're any playoff team, just look at the freaking tape of what the Knicks did to Luca, and that'd be like their blueprint of how to slow him down. So apparently, for some odd reason, the Knicks just get to him, bro. I don't know what it is. He didn't have a bad night shooting percentage wise. I mean, he had shit night shooting from three. He was twelve of twenty five, so he just shot on just barely under fifty percent. It's it it's a- not necessarily all him. It's people just not knocking down shots. Reggie Bullock was zero of eight. All of them being eight threes, and he missed two free throws. <laughs> <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that, bro? I have more. I, I had the same number of points on my couch. Like, come on, bro. Like, ugh, yuck. But you know, listen, it's one bad loss. I'm not going to put too much stock into it. You guys will be fine. It's I think just, so. it's just that I, I know you, you, you definitely get frustrated when the uh, the team I get mad, like bro. I I watched up to halftime. I looked at Isabel and I said, "I'm not watching this shit no more." <laughs> at half, bro. At half, I, I knew it. But I will say this: speaking of something that you probably will watch, probably this weekend, Batman, my guy. This is going to be the last segment that we have for the episodes today. And that is the Batman has been released. I've got the chance to see it. Kevin's got the chance to see it multiple times. And we're going to do our movie review to this. Now, Batman is the first time that we've seen Robert Pattinson play the lead role as Batman in this first film. I think he signed on for a trilogy. If I don't remember, if I, if I remember correctly, um, I have my personal feelings about this. Kevin has his personal feelings about this. Kevin, to get this one to you, what were your overall feelings about the Batman movie that was just released a couple of days ago? Now, for those of you that don't know, um, we've done a couple of movie reviews before. I am a big super comic book nerd and connoisseur. Um, I've been read comic books since I was a little kid by my dad who used to collect them back in the 70s and the 80s. So I've been in comic books basically since birth. I've been a DC fan first since I was a kid because I have an obsession with Nightwing. And for people that also don't know, that's Dick Grayson, the first Robin who eventually becomes his own superhero, blah, 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 blah. This movie, from cover to cover in terms of like beginning to end, because I'm making it a comic book reference, you see what I did there, haha, cover to cover, uh, was absolutely impeccable. I thought if I had to give it a personal grading, it was a 9 out of 10. I'm going to make the bold statement and say it is the greatest solo comic book movie of all time. Better than the Iron Man's, better than the Spider-Man franchise, better than pretty much any solo superhero movie of all time. Because they gave us everything we needed from a DC slash Batman perspective that needed to be had. We've had multiple iterations of Batman with obviously Adam West, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, Michael Keaton, Christian Bale, Ben Affleck, and now Robert Pattinson. And we're not even including the animated Batman voices and characters that have gone on for decades. So I'm looking at this cinematically saying, this was a great movie. This literally, to me, had no flaws, aside from the fact that this was just a little on the lengthy side. But it's funny because when Marvel has a two and a half hour to three hour movie, nobody gives a shit. But now that Batman's three hours, it's dragged on. Again, maybe it's because everybody's spoiled and is so used to action packed fighting in space and all this different shit. People are forgetting that 
movies have to make sense. Movies have to tell a story. And at the same time, movies also have to draw in a new audience. You can't tell a Batman story and have it attract different people if you're telling the same story over and over. Now, for those uneducated people, oh, it's just another Batman film. He's just uh, fighting and beating up bad guys. No. This was a detective-focused, dark and themed, and beginning, not origin story, but beginning story to Batman's initial life. And no spoiler is going to be told here because, obviously, if you haven't seen it, I don't want to ruin it. Um, If you haven't seen it, you're absolutely crazy because I'm going to see it for a third time come legit, hopefully, Saturday. But that would be three times in about... I don't know, 10 days. But anyway, that's just me. Uh, How Matt Reeves, the director, went about presenting this, the imagery, cinematography, the score, the story, the casting, the character development. I mean, you name it. From a movie aspect, this checked all the boxes for me. Robert Pattinson's performance, great. Zoe Kravitz's performance, absolutely incredible. The cast behind them, because obviously those two are the ones that stole the show, amazing. I mean... If you haven't seen it already, Colin Farrell's role as the Penguin has done so well. They're doing a spinoff series on HBO Max. When was the last time you heard a side character being so well done and portrayed that he's getting his own show? Absolutely incredible. I think that how they portrayed Batman from the beginning to the end, from how he started to how it ended, perfect. I think that the story that they told with how the Riddler began and why and all of the side pieces, the innuendos, the foreshadowing, they left so many doors open to possibilities because this is going to be a trilogy. It's beautiful. In the pandemic era, which is sad that I have to say era, since 2020, this is the second highest grossing movie of all time with, I think, $128.5 million domestically. And Spider-Man did 260. Spider-Man... For those of you that, again, are unaware, that was the third iteration of a trilogy in and of itself with plenty of rumors of former Spider-Man and multiple villains of past Spider-Man being in that. So you take out the entire storyline of Spider-Man No Way Home. I don't necessarily know if it even comes close to the, the, the fact of what the Batman put on the screen. Because if I, if again, if you're asking me, this movie was better than Spider-Man by a mile. I mean, if you take out the emotional connection to Toby and Andrew coming back, also, if you haven't seen it, that's not my problem. It's literally been almost three months. Sucks to suck. Um, then you guys are holding on and living in the prisoner of the moment thing because you saw the original Spider-Man coming back in to work with Tom Holland. This was literally just about Robert Pattinson's Batman. This was solely about him developing as Batman. And for those of you that are continuing to say this has nothing to do with Bruce Wayne, you're not paying attention to the bigger story at hand. But again, I will leave it at that to save people from spoilers. So if you have an opportunity, go see this movie. I get everybody's making the comparison against the Dark Knight. This is nothing. Heath Ledger's Joker versus the Riddler in this movie. Not even close. These are two different movies. You can't really make a comparison. I think that Robert Pattinson's Batman is the best Batman we've ever had. And I will literally die on that hill by myself because of how they portrayed this Batman so accurately to the comic. But overall, 9 out of 10, a must-see movie, beautifully, beautifully done. Shout-out to Matt Reeves. That movie did everything I needed it to do. Kevin, I have a similar sentiment when it comes to this movie. You gave this a 9 out of 10, correct? Yeah. I've got this around like maybe like an 8, 8.5, and, a half, and I'll, I'll dive into this. Now, granted, I am not the big comic 
book guy. I am not really somebody who like dives into comic books throughout most of my life. I, I haven't been that. But when I went into this, uh, when I w- watched this movie uh, the other day, the one thing that kind of struck me, like just at the beginning of the movie, was the overall pace of the movie. Like at first, it was a slower movie. And that was kind of the theme that I think was brought up throughout most of the movie. This was largely a detective-based movie in regards to Batman. And the one thing that I kind of caught very early on was that this is a younger version of Batman. And you can kind of tell throughout the movie because there are certain points in time where you could tell that Batman is still kind of clearly learning like what his role is or like what he's like going to plan on being as far as like what his what really what his value system is and the the one thing that kind of like caught me off guard that i thought was kind of funny that kind of highlighted that point was there's a scene in the movie where batman jumps off a building and i think he like pulls out like this kind of like this squirrel uh suit where he's able to fly but he doesn't really do it that well he he ends up like living he survives but it's like it's not done in the most graceful way and it's kind of funny because when you juxtapose that with the christian bale batman in the dark knight there's a scene and i think it's hong kong where he kind of does something similar but he does it a lot more gracefully when he jumps off of a high-rise building so like that was kind of something that i kind of took away from with this movie the overall performance though that i had with robert pattinson just the overall feeling I thought Robert Pattinson did a pretty solid job based on what they were going for in this film. This is a younger version of Batman. He is not perfect in any way, shape, or form. He makes mistakes throughout this movie, and that's something that I kind of caught on very early on. And then, you know, as the movie progressed, I kind of got that sentiment as well. Now, the, the only issue that I had with this movie was the ending. The ending was not something that I thought it was overly like thrilling, but I kind of have to keep that in mind. This is a three movie. This is a, this is going to be three movies and I know they're kind of setting it up for the next one. So granted, I wasn't really thrilled with how this movie ended. That's probably really the only point that I could take as far as a negative aspect with this movie. But I mean, all in all, I thought the cinematography was great for Matt Reeves. You could definitely tell like he put like a darker tone as far as what the visual was for what we were seeing as the audience. I thought that worked very well. I also thought the score in the background kind of highlighted that as well. One thing about me, and this is just me personally, the music that goes with the film matters a lot to me because it captures the moment. And if you have a score that captures the moment and it goes alongside with the music in the background. That's great. But when you have a movie that has bad background music, even though that the movie could be great, it detracts from the overall product. I thought in this case, I thought the music complemented the mood of the movie very well. And I think it worked from pretty much beginning to end. So, you know, I don't know where it's really going to go. From here, I I think overall, the way that I see this kind of going is, you know, I have to see a little bit more progression as far as Batman's overall um, improvement in what he is going to be. I think you kind of got a glimpse of that 
towards the end of the movie, but I had to see a little bit more of a character development with Robert Pattinson as Batman going into the second movie. Other than that, I thought the performances were pretty solid across the board. I really thought the best one uh, from this entire film was probably the Penguin, just because I thought the Penguin was great from beginning to end. That's not really to detract what Robert Pattinson did as Batman. I thought overall the standout performance was the Penguin, in my opinion. But all in all, you know, for this being a, a new trilogy as far as the Batman is concerned, I think it's a very good start. Um, I'm not really going to jump into like comparisons between um, this version of Batman compared to like Christian Bale as far as like which movies are better. Like I, this is the first one of the trilogy. Like I, I can't go to that yet. Um, this is definitely I would put as a higher rated Batman film uh, from what I've seen personally. But, you know, time will tell as, you know, what goes on with these next two movies that Robert Pattinson is scheduled for this trilogy. But overall, um, I definitely enjoyed this movie. Um, I may go see it one more time just to kind of get a better sense of the movie. Maybe I missed some things uh, from the first time that I watched it because I just kind of just sat down and just watched the movie just to kind of get a feel for it. But overall, um, I was entertained. I thought it was pretty good from beginning to end. The only thing that I could say that really kind of detracted uh, from the movie, in my opinion, was the ending. But you know, for a three-hour movie, I thought they did a pretty good job. So overall, I give it an eight, eight and a half when it's all said and done. I can't complain. I loved it. Obviously, if I'm seeing it for the third time in literally like less than a two-week span, um, I'm, I'm thinking very highly of it. Me being a comic book fan, um, I can't complain for those of you that are, are saying that I'm crazy for my take or that, you know, you disagree. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. My girlfriend alluded to that. When I heard people literally leaving the theater, I, I cannot sh freaking exaggerate. This lady walks out and says, this is why Marvel is better. And her point was because there was no edit. There's no end credit scene. It's not a spoiler. If you don't know that by now, it is what it is. But, you know. Dude, what? That that was her what? point when we left the theater. Okay. Well, first of all, Ignorance. I am not, I, I am not like that big of a superhero guy. Even though I, you guys can't see it, I have a couple of movie posters off to the side, and one of them is uh, the Dark Knight. Um, it's it's one of the Joker. You know, it's a why so serious, but um. Really, like, when it comes to, like, the best superhero movies that I've seen, they've all been DC over Marvel. Marvel's gotten a lot of shine the last couple of years just because of the whole Avengers build-up to Endgame. But overall, when it comes to, like, top-tier superhero movies, I would put DC over Marvel any day of the week. It's just that Marvel's just been so popularized the last decade or so. It doesn't detract from what DC's put out as products, though. Because the way that I see it, the Dark Knight is the best superhero movie ever. It's not even close. But, you know, for somebody to say, like, oh my god, Marvel's better than DC after this film, I, this is better than pretty much most Marvel uh, Marvel movies have been out for the last decade. I mean, th th there's only maybe, like, one or two movies that I could say from Marvel that are better than this thing. And, and you could kind of make an argument with that. Because the ones that I would probably say are maybe, like, I'd say like Civil War could compete against this one. Not I, a solo. 
but no, no, no. I'm just talking about like as far as like overall movies, like it, like entertainment value for me. Like I, I enjoyed yeah. Civil War. Civil War is a good movie. Civil War um, is probably one of the best iterations of the entire Marvel series, in my opinion. I think it's one of the best. And then honestly, I liked Infinity War. Infinity War was good. I think it was I, better I, out of the two. I, I enjoyed Infinity War. So Endgame, I was. It, it was a long movie. Um, it was great. It, it, I, the the build up at the end that one scene like before they fight that that was really cool but, yeah the Avengers assemble scene is iconic forever yeah but it, for, for me personally like this this Batman movie I I thought was you know better than pretty much what most of Marvel movies have been the last decade and, and, and the one thing this is kind of something that I think my brother and I were talking about a little bit because like the to me there's a distinction between DC and Marvel and it's very stark. Marvel has become like I don't want to say it's like it, it's the end thing for sure, but it's like it's very like cotton candy. Like it's very it, it's just the end thing right now. Everybody's talking about Marvel just because it, that's just the end thing right now. But it almost kind of seems like the way that DC kind of went with this direction with the Batman is like this was kind of like curated to a more mature audience. This wasn't really made for kids. Marvel movies are kind of made for kids. This wasn't. This was a much more darker film. It was a, I, I, I don't know if I would say serious, but it definitely had that undertone. And that was one thing that I definitely appreciated about this Batman movie. You know, you can make the case, oh, it's, you know, the, this movie is better than this, this movie is better than that. But to me, on a more personal level, this had a lot more entertainment value, despite the fact that this was a more darker film and not just aesthetically, but really like just the overall tone of the movie. I thought it was great. And I think that's the distinction that I think DC can make compared to Marvel is like Marvel is to be honest. I, I think Marvel is kind of more curated to kids and maybe like teenagers where DC can almost be curated to more like younger adults and adults in general. Like I think that that's the audience that they could target. Because this because this kind of pointed to that to me. That's just kind of how And uh, yeah, well, yeah, again, you know, it's it's the each his own. I, I I respect everybody's love of Marvel. I mean, granted, like you said, it's more of a recent thing um because of the build up of the Avengers series and because of the build up and the character development over the last 15 years. Of course, if all you have to go off of is Christian Bale's trilogy, Aquaman, the Wonder Woman, the Man of Steel, all these different random movies coming out of all this time. Warner Brothers fucked up. They did it wrong. They did Justice League first after Man of Steel instead of doing a solo Batman iteration, a solo Wonder Woman. They did all those things after Justice League came out. And until the Snyder Cut came out, um, Justice League was known as to be one of the worst movies of all time because of the buildup and the money that it made in the box office was trash. They didn't even make the money back. So it's like you look at DC over the last 10 or so years and, you know, to your point, I know you said that they've kind of given us some of the best movies in terms of superhero. I'm going to have to disagree with that because of how bad Warner Brothers has fucked up a lot of their storylines. No, 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 no. That's, that's not what I said. What I said was when it comes to top tier superhero movies. <laughs> oh, that they, the movies did, that actually did well, yeah. yeah I, I'm talking about that specifically because, I mean, the way that I see it is – I'll give you an example. That Batman trilogy with Christian Bale, I think to me is, well, it's the best 
trilogy of, of Batman. That, like that's the best Batman series that I've personally seen. As far Until as like, we get the on, rest of this one. on the big screen so far, Th- this is off to a good start. I agree with you there. And I do have to say, like when it comes to the Snyder cut of Justice League, when it comes to Man of Steel, like those are top tier movies as far as I'm concerned. You could make a, you could probably make a better point about the Snyder cut, even though that is a four hour movie. Four hour movie, which I will be seeing for the fourth time this weekend. But overall, like when DC gets it right, to me, they hit, bro. They really hit more than Marvel. Marvel to me, Marvel has filler. Yeah, it's filler and it's mainstream. It's what's hot. Yeah, and, and the thing is, I think what DC can learn from is that those individual movies matter. Like, the, like the one thing about Marvel that I think Marvel really screwed up was when it came to the individual superhero movies, their own, their own respective movies. Most of them were weak. The only ones that I thought were actually decent. Were like I thought the Captain Americas were pretty good. I thought Black sure. Panther. I thought Black Panther was pretty good. Um, but uh, honestly, a lot of the Iron Mans, I could kind of take it or leave it. Don't really care about those. Uh the Thors. I know, thought Thor: Dark World was the best one, and, and that's one where I'm kind of hit hit or miss on. Um, it, it's just. I, I like the direction that they took with, with Dark World. I just didn't like the ending. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't like the ending. I kind of got bored with the ending. But the lead up to it, I thought, was fine. It's just, I think if DC just focuses more on these individual movies, instead of kind of looking at the bigger theme to build it up to something, I think that's where they can win. And they can learn from Marvel's mistakes, because I think there were a lot of Marvel movies where the, when they focus on just one individual superhero, those movies were relatively weak. And and I really, the one that I kind of point to was Iron Man. Some of those Iron Man movies were. No. Iron Man three was the worst one or Iron Man two was the worst one. I thought two and three were basically, you could just throw them in the trash, but you know, all, I mean, all in all, I mean, you know, I know we're kind of getting sidetracked here from the original point, which is, you know, this latest Batman movie, but you know, overall, like when it comes to, you know, opening up another Batman trilogy, I think that this is off to a very good start. I don't know if it's as good as like you know Batman Begins with Christian Bale, but this is a good start. Yeah, I'm gonna rewatch that trilogy probably starting tonight, if not tomorrow, just because I have so many people coming at me, including Tyree, um, that are saying we're caught in the we're caught in the moment. You know, like Bat- the Dark Knight is the greatest movie of all it time. Is. Like I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm, but I'm not saying that the Batman is the greatest movie of all time. I'm saying in terms of a Batman iteration of how it started. Because this wasn't a basic everyday Batman story that explains his origin. Bro, this starts smack in the middle of a scene. Like, legitimately right into the storyline. And they literally mention the origin in passing through a news reference for like a split second. If you don't know his origin, you have no idea what the fuck's going on. Like, you don't understand this. This is not a, this is not a movie to start understanding Batman. This is not a movie to bring kids to to try to understand Batman. Like you said, this is a very dark image and portrayed Batman. The fact that they went a route to where it's not focused on beating the shit out of somebody the entire movie or chasing a villain through Gotham for the entire movie, this is a detective-based movie to solve riddles. This is literally Batman's focal point. He's known as the world's greatest detective. For God's sakes, it's called Detective Comics. Mm -hmm. Like, this movie 
is DC. This movie is Batman. What Christian Bale was able to portray in that trilogy for the 12-year span that that trilogy lasted was absolutely phenomenal. I have no complaints aside from the dragged out, where's the trigger? Like the the, the voice shit. (laughs) It it got so annoying after a while. Like it just got so – like you have to have a conversation with Gordon like, yeah. We have to save the city. Like, you sound like you fucking smoked packs of cigarettes for days in the Batcave. <laughs> like, to me, it just, it got annoying quickly. And the repetitive nature of Batman making mistakes and then all these flaws. And then, dude, you're going to tell me the Rachel in that damn trilogy is hotter than Zoe Kravitz? Bro, get the fuck out of here, man. Like, the women in this movie were way better than the damn main female characters in the Batman trilogy from Christian Bale. But again, I'm getting away from what I'm trying to say. We are caught up in the fact that the Dark Knight has some of the greatest, if not the greatest iteration of the Joker we've ever seen on the big screen. Kevin, I'll take it one stretch further. I'm talking about the best acting I've ever seen. Ever seen. Again, I I get that. I get that. I'm talking about the best Batman movie, though. This was a that was a great movie. I know the fight scenes, the CGI, the explosions, the imagery, amazing. Heath Ledger and and the Joker were one and the same, and that Joker versus Batman was absolutely incredible, demonic, and it was dark in its own self when he blew up the hospital and everything. Yes, perfectly written, perfectly scripted. But I love where they went with this Batman because you didn't have to rely. And referencing his parents, you didn't have to rely on Lucius Fox for equipment. You didn't have to rely on this billionaire philanthropist Bruce Wayne and seeing like you know making all this coverage. You actually got into a depth understanding as to why Batman is Batman, why he does what he does, and how he wants to portray his image to the criminals of Gotham. And that's why I love it because it's accurate. It's actually based off of a book that I got in the theater, and it's correct. And it's literally like not not 100%, not 90%, but it's the most comic accurate iteration of Batman I have ever seen. And I, as a fan, will always hold that in high regard. Tyrese read these too. So if Tyree were to sit and give you, if if, if, if you were to, I don't give a shit. I love the fact that I grew up with this. If you were to go and take a piece of each book and tell me how this is referenced in The Dark Knight, tell me how that is anywhere near comic book accurate. Aside from the Joker's portrayal, I seriously, can't, I can't. It's just the Dark Knight's a better movie. <laughs> yeah, well, better movie overall because of what it brought to the world, and you know the box office money, and literally like the that's greatest, just, arguably the greatest just, comic book movie ever because it was so good. It's just the box office. I don't care about box office. Box office just tells if it's popular or not. It's just, I, I, I mean, Kevin. I mean, I, I gotta point it again. I mean, it's the only comic book poster i have in my room and it's that one there. and it's fine again but yeah, you know it's, it's, it's the it's, but that movie, so silly. it's just that, that movie so you didn't have to worry about cameos foreshadowing you were focused on the joker versus batman in this movie it alluded to a future a very detailed future with ca- future cameos that, endless possibilities th- that's one thing that i kind of made mention of it's like the one thing that i need to see in this next movie is I need to see more development in Batman's character because when it comes to the Christian Bale one, like when it comes to that trilogy in particular, that's a version of Batman later on 
correct if I'm wrong. Like, correct me if I'm wrong. Like, that's a yeah. That, Batman that, Begins is supposed to be the first like literal like first couple of years as Batman. So the, like, you like, kind of skip through. Like, like, like this is like Batman kind of learning things on the fly. If if I'm correct, right? This is Batman in year two. So the timeline fig- is identified. He's figuring things out. He's figuring out how to kind of go about this whole thing. He because the one thing that I've always kind of talked about with Batman, or one of the things I've always kind of seen in Batman, is that. What Batman lacks, and as far as like superhuman strength or just like superhero like capabilities, he makes up for as like a strategist, a tactician. Because that's always something that I've kind of pointed to with Batman. Batman is always kind of he'll think two or three steps ahead instead of having like super strength or having like laser beam vision like Superman does. That's the difference in what Batman is. And this it kind of kicks it to more of a Batman who is a little bit more vulnerable in a sense because he doesn't have the experience to go off of what you saw in the Christian Bale trilogy where he's kind of already kind of gone through the ropes already. He's learned from his past experiences and that kind of makes a more well-rounded Batman what you saw in the Christian Bale series. This is a much more, for lack of a better term, a rawer version of Batman in this trilogy, but it's like I said, I need to see more of a development in that second movie when it comes to theaters, which is probably going to be what? Two, two, three years, years. two, three years. Matt, Matt Reeves said um, that this one won't take five years. Obviously it took five years mainly because of COVID and all the delays. Yeah. Yeah. This, this, I I would expect if I had to put a thumb on it, this will probably start filming next year. This will start filming next year at the it, end. Like, probably late next year, yeah. Yep. That's but, how good it is. That's how good it's going to be. But, you know, I, I mean, dude, overall, great movie. You know, definitely excited for what, you know, they could come out with. But, you know, we'll just kind of see how it goes from there. 100%. I know we kind of got off on a massive tangent with comic books, and oh, I apologize yeah. in advance. 100%. That's okay. But we, That's... hey, we we haven't talked in a while, Kyle. We haven't really gotten a chance to communicate since you've been busy with work and doing going through. You. Now the allergies hit me because now my eyes are getting itchy. Yeah, shit, I, I know, I know. Up. Yeah, my eyes are starting to water up a little bit. That's just probably because of the lights. They're finally kind of getting to me, but you know, bro, we've hit all of our topics, bro. I know this was this was a makeup episode. There's no doubt, but uh, I, I was a little rusty, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get it back next week. Trust me. Oh, yeah, for sure. On Sunday. We'll get it back on Sunday. Sir. But, um, you know, with that said, you guys, you know, once again, thank you guys for tuning in. I know it's been a week since we last got on the mic and uh, sat down to record. But overall, you know, glad to get back to it. Um, like Kevin said, we'll have another episode out early next week for you guys. Um, you know, I don't really know what's on the agenda, you know, going into next week. We'll kind of see how things go. I've got the NCAA tournament right now. Uh, or really like the uh, not the uh, not the tournament, but you have the conference tournaments that are taking place right now. Now Kevin's probably going to get his heart broken by UNC. But that's another story for the hey, day. Hey, 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 we just won tonight. Let me get the little. Let me get. The, we're going to the semifinals uh, of the uh, ATC tournament. Okay, we're, we're working on the baseball lockout has come come to an end. So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that next week. But overall, you know, we'll yeah, ready for the Yankees to break my heart every year, bro. Every year, every fucking year. <laughs> But, um, Kevin, I've got nothing else to add from here. Uh, the floor is yours to take us home. All right. Well, guys, as always, thank you for all the support. Really, really appreciate it. Since we've been gone this entire week, I mean, you already know. Kyle has already said it. I mean, we have missed you guys. We have missed recording so much. And thankfully, we were able to get back to it today. 
So, I mean, with everything being said, thank you for everything, and we will see you again come Sunday. Welcome to Transforming 45, the podcast that celebrates the incredible power of passionate voices. I'm your host, Lisa Boat. Join me in conversation with heart-led humans who share their deeply personal stories of transformation. Transforming 45 is here to uplift, connect, and remind you that it's never too late to write your next chapter. So get ready to be inspired, empowered, and transformed. Join me in this community where through powerful storytelling, we heal and reclaim our inherent magic. Hi, I'm Lessa Cadet, host of her Extraordinary Life by Design podcast, where we celebrate women who are shaping their lives one extraordinary day at a time. I speak with women from all over the world about what they do and how they are passionately pursuing their dreams and creating meaningful impacts on their communities. So come join us and learn about all there is to learn about these extraordinary women.